0: Good morning, everyone. It's great to um, have the privilege of preaching this morning, and it's great to see your faces. So um, just wanted to also, before I start, we're going to look at Mark chapter 5 this morning, but just to encourage you out of what <coughs> was brought uh, by John, uh, just in terms of how we respond as a Christian community to all that's going on with, with um, coronavirus in the world. Um, I really do want to encourage you not to give in to fear and not to shrink back. Um, I would love it at the, if the church actually was at the forefront of taking care of people and taking care of the sick and feeding people that need food and not hoarding toilet paper like the rest of the world. What is that about? <laughs> so I would, I would encourage you, if, even if you get ill, There's no guarantee that we might not get ill. But but here's the thing. Christians have always responded in time of sickness and plague and persecution with the love of Christ to other people. And so I want to encourage you. It's not just about protecting ourselves. It's about loving other people and letting God use us to be a blessing to others. Amen. So let's be aware of the most vulnerable people, especially the elderly in our community. Let's be aware. Let's be looking out for people. Let's be taking care of people. Let's pray for the guys that are in our church that work in hospitals as they take care of the most vulnerable. Amen. It's a time to live with courage. Not a time to shrink back. time to live with courage and the love of Christ. Amen. So here we go. This morning I'm going to be speaking to you about pigs, one of my favorite subjects, pigs. And uh, the title of my message is this, When Jesus Comes, the Pigs Have to Go. All right? That's the good news. When Jesus comes, the pigs have to go. This is part of our series on Mark. This is um, part 20. And we're going to look at this amazing miracle. Remember I told you a couple of weeks ago that we're moving now from Jesus, the great teacher. He's been talking in parables and instructing people into Jesus, showing Jesus as the miracle worker, the Lord of all creation. And now we're going to see one of his amazing miracles that he demonstrates in the city of Gadares. And so we're going to read a chunky portion together. Please bear with me. I'll do my best to read it well. Here we go. It says this. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gezerines. When Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived amongst the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, The man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Amen. Well, I trust this morning you're going to marvel at the power of Jesus and you're going to respond to Him with praise and worship and live your life courageously for Him. So here we have this most eerie and unusual story when Jesus comes to the other side of the sea. Remember, He was in Capernaum. He gets into the sea, into the boats with His friends. They experience the storm, and now He arrive, arrives at this town called Gadara, or here it's described as Gazerene. And it um, can be a bit confusing because when you read the different gospels, it's called by different names. And there's a reason for that. Remember, Mark, Luke, and Matthew are writing for different groups of people. So when Mark is writing predominantly for a Gentile audience, he uses the Greek word for the town, which is Gadara. In Matthew's gospel, it's called the country of Gadarenes, Matthew 8. And in Luke, it's called the country of the Ger- Ger- Gergesenes. So it's a little bit uh, confusing. But remember, Matthew is writing for a Jewish audience, and so he uses the Hebrew or the Aramaic name for the same town. So it's not that the Gospels are contradicting each other. It's just different languages, and it's the same town. All right? So this town is on the northeastern side of the lake, and he has a couple of things that will give us some context as we look at this amazing miracle about the city of Gadara. First of all, remember, Jesus had left Capernaum, which was a, which was a, a, a harbor town. And here, this is a picture of the modern-day Gadara, which was in that day a major harbor town and harbors are generally part of cities that are thriving commercially. And Gadara was about six miles to the southeast in modern-day Jordan from Capernaum, and so there were a lot of harbors along the the Galilean Sea, and Gadara was the largest. It had the biggest harbor, about 200 meters long. And so it was an important city in the Decapolis. There was a collection of 10 cities in the area, and it supplied goods and services. And because it was the largest harbor on the lake, it could contain the largest ships, particularly those that brought grain. And so there have even been coins that have been uh, found with the words nomesia on it, which uh, feature naval battles and mock naval battles uh, that took place in this harbor to entertain people. So for more than 250 years after this event, there were coins depicting the city of Gadara and uh, reflecting back on the kind of city that it was. And here's an interesting thing in terms of the context of our story. So, so this is Gadara, and um, the Jordanian village is called Umquas. Uh, that's what it's called now, but this is really uh, the place that they think this miracle happened. And here's an interesting thing. Um, archaeologists also tell us that the residents of Gadara in Jesus' day were swine herders they cultivated pigs. Why did they do that? Well, because for the most part, there was the Roman Legion, the 10th Roman Legion that was in the Gadara area. It was called Legio Decima Ferentis. That's the fancy name for uh, the 10th 10th Roman Legion. And they predominantly ate pork, the soldiers. And so one of the things that the Greeks did in Gadara was they cultivated pigs for the Romans to eat. All right? And uh, he has some pictures. If you go um, to the next slides, please. This is um, outside of Gadara, about six miles outside of Gadara. There's this memorial, which um, archaeologists now think was not the place. But there was a church that was built here to commemorate this miracle of Jesus in about the third century. And so it's called the Cursing Memorial. It just gives you an idea of the kind of terrain uh, initially, they thought it was the site of the miracle, but they no longer think so. they think it 's another place. If you go to the next uh, slide, please, um, I included this because this is actually you know, in Roman towns, you get tiles on the floor where they, they put tiles on the floor. Well, well here, this is actually a floor from uh, one of the houses in the modern that the archaeologists have found. And you can see there there 's a wild boar um, on the floor. Which shows that they they were farming pigs, all right. And so this is what they did in that town. And uh, you go to the next picture. This is uh, I included this as well because we're going to look at this as part of the story. Romans also gave sacrifices to their gods, all right. And this is a picture of a ceremony called the Suverentalia, which happened in the ancient times where they sacrificed to the god Mars. You remember the Greeks had versions of their gods and the Romans had versions of their gods. They were just called by different names. But they sacrificed here. You can see a bull. You can see a sheep. Can you see a pig? Black pig. Black pig was sacrificed to Mars as part of ritual sacrifice. And remember I said to you that... Um, they were growing pigs, they, 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 they farmed pigs not only for the Romans, but also the Greek people in Gadara were farming pigs so they could sell them in the temples for sacrificial um, offerings to the gods. And I've included a picture of what kind of pigs they were. Here we go. Next picture, please. Uh, this, is where they think, this is where they think the miracle did happen. You can see it's a steep, steep uh, slope down into the sea. And it's about six miles from the actual town. People have said, "Well, if it was, uh, uh, why so far from the town?" Well, if you've ever been around pigs' farms, can you can you recall what it smells like? Yeah, exactly. So if you've got two thousand pigs, you're not going to have them right in your town, all right? You're going to have them outside of the town where you farm them, and then you're going to bring them back into the market. So this is. Um, uh, this is the, one of the slopes that they thought might possibly have been the place of the miracle. And like I said, Greek people, Gentile people, farming the pigs to uh, offer up as sacrifices to the gods. All right, and if you go to the next one, there you see it's these, these kind of pigs. How many of you like Palmer ham? How many of you like Serrano ham? The best ham is from black pigs that eat acorns. Isn't that true? So Gadara, around the whole city of Gadara on the hills, oak trees everywhere. That's why it was an ideal place to farm pigs. So the pigs would come down, eat the acorns, they would cultivate the pigs, sell them to the Romans, and use them as ritual sacrifices in the temples. Is this beginning to make sense to you now, this amazing miracle that Jesus does? The real importance of the story is it shows Jesus moving into Gentile areas. Mark doesn't tell us why Jesus did move into Gentile areas. Perhaps he wanted to get away from the crowds. Remember in Capernaum there were thousands of people following him. Perhaps he just wanted to have time with his father. Perhaps he wanted to escape the increasing opposition of the Jewish leaders. Remember the last time he was in Capernaum, if you remember back to our our series, the, the religious leaders come and accuse him of casting out demons by Beelzebub. Do you remember? That's the last thing that happened in Capernaum. And then he gets into the boat and he goes across the lake. And here, in the early evening when he's arriving in the lake, in the city of Gadara, there's this weird, wild man who's obviously d- demonically possessed and he lives amongst the li- li- limestone caves that must have been hollowed out of the rock. And they were used as tombs by people. And the, at the best of times, this must have seemed an airy place, but as, as night fell, it must have been a grim, grim place for Jesus to arrive. And so, it is appropriate that this man is found in the tombs because at that time, the people believed that demons lived in lonely places, in wooded areas, in deserted places. They also believed that demons were most active at night. That's why people were fearful when they were traveling of sleeping alone at night in isolated places. And if you went outside without a lantern or a light, you were courting trouble. And so, out of the darkness, this man appears. He's demon-possessed, he's demonized, he's dangerous. And the Scripture highlights how strong he is and how unusually strong he is that no one can subdue him. And and even when they try to subdue him with chains, he broke the chains. And he shouts, and he's out of his mind, literally. And he cuts himself. But here's the amazing thing. When he sees Jesus, he immediately recognizes who Jesus is. Do you notice that? He says immediately, he says, you are the Messiah. You're the Son of God. What do you want with me? What do you want with me, Son of the Most High God? And the demons cry out from this man and say, Do not torment us. Do you notice that the man wasn't feeling hopeful when he met Jesus? He cries out, Don't torment me. Now, obviously, Jesus wouldn't torture anyone, but the demons knew that were were possessing the man, that one day they would be judged and thrown into the everlasting fire. That's what the, the, the Revelation 20.10 says. And all over Scripture, whenever there are demons spoken about, the Scripture agrees that demons will be judged in the age to come and that they will be bound up and ultimately cast into the lake of fire. And so what is fascinating to me in this story is that the crowds that have been following Jesus around Capernaum They were drawn by His miracles. They were drawn by His teaching. They still weren't sure who He was. And the disciples that were living with Jesus and had seen the miracles firsthand and had been through the storm with Jesus, they still hadn't made up their mind who Jesus was. In fact, Jesus, remember last week, He rebukes the disciples for their little faith. And here, immediately, this demonized man recognizes instantly who Jesus is. And so then we have this interaction with the man. Jesus prays more than once. Isn't that interesting? We sometimes have to pray more than once. He speaks once to to the demon. It doesn't seem to respond because he speaks again, and then he says, what is your name? And it becomes clear that there are many demons in this man. And so here's the interesting part. I included a a picture of a Roman legion. Can you go back to the why did I do that? Because a Roman legion, is ma- a regiment, a legion is made up of 6,000 troops. That's what makes up a legion. And so perhaps this word legion also has a deeper connotation for us. I've already said to you that Gadara was the home of the 10th Roman legion. And ironically, here's the thing that's so interesting. The emblem for the 10th Roman legion. Do you want to guess what it was? A pig. The emblem for the 10th Roman Legion was a wild boar. And they included it as as their emblem, not because they enjoyed eating it, but because a wild boar is famous for its viciousness, its speed, its tenacity, and that it never gives up when it fights. And so this was the emblem of the 10th Roman Legion. And so there's this unkosher unkosher animal, if you like. That's the emblem of the Roman Legion. And whenever they went and they constructed buildings, they put up on the buildings a wild boar to show that the 10th Roman Legion had been responsible for constructing the house. So it was their mascot. And so I want to suggest to you that perhaps there was a spiritual connection, not only with um, the man, but over the whole area. And why do I say that? Because Roman soldiers traveled with priests who offered up ritual sacrifices for the Roman soldiers so that they might have success in battle so it's quite possible that wherever they went the 10th Roman Legion there was a pagan priest offering up sacrifices to ensure that they would have victory in the battle now here's the other thing could be another connotation of this word legion the Roman legions were were wild in battle and sometimes guilty of terrible, terrible atrocities against local people. Perhaps this man is traumatized and demonized. Whether you believe in demons or not, it's not, it's not, it's not an issue this morning. This man, either this was, was such a, a profound hallucination, not hallucination, um, psychosis in his life that he believed it was absolutely true or that he was, he was possessed by all these demons, whatever it is. The reality is that he needed help. He needed deliverance. He needed someone to come and take him out of darkness into light and to transform his life. So whatever you believe about the demonic, I'm not really interested in that this morning. I'm trying to say this man knew that he needed help and he couldn't help himself. There's only one that could help him. And so some people have suggested that the, the, um, the Aramaic name is Legiona, which, Jesus, which he could have identified himself as, which also means soldier. The point is that this man identified himself not by the name that his parents had given him, Anthony or Stuart or Helen. He identified himself by the name of the demons that were oppressing him. And so perhaps this man had had some terrible experiences in his life that had brought him to this point where he now was living amongst the tombs, crazed out of his mind, completely oppressed, So not only does the word legion speak about the many evil spirits, it also speaks about the Romans that went around bringing terror, death, destruction, and oppression to everybody in that area. And so Jesus comes and prays for this man more than once. He prays a second time, and he asks him, what is your name? And the reason for that is that... The, the Jewish theology is that if you could name something, you had power over it. So Jesus is demonstrating he's got power over the suppression in this, this man's life. And he still, not only once he has power, but he wants to give a dramatic demonstration that this demon is actually left a man. And so... There's the herd of pigs, and the story says that Jesus gives them permission to leave the man and to enter the herd of pigs, and the man is totally delivered from the suppression. And we have this dramatic demonstration of the man freed. And the favorite line for me in the whole story is that little line that says, There he sat, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. I love that. So much stuff in our world, anxiety, depression, all these things, we too can be sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in our right minds. With, with nothing bothering us in our hearts and our minds, we can be set free completely and He can bring absolute peace into us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? And so the pigs destroy themselves, they rush down the hill, and now that's a big problem for the Gadarenes. Because why is it a big problem for the gatherings? Because they're making their living out of selling pigs. (laughs) They make their living out of selling pigs to the Romans and selling pigs to the temples. And so their means of income has been destroyed. And so they go to, when this wonderful story is shared in the town, you would think that they would welcome it with joy. But they're absolutely terrified by what's happened. You might think that they would have said, Jesus, please come and stay longer and do more mighty miracles amongst us. But they don't. They would rather have the pigs. They would rather have the way things were. They would rather have their means of income than they would have the presence of Jesus. Jesus. And so it points us to a very interesting thing. Mark is trying to say something to us, that even the most powerful miracles don't necessarily induce faith in people's hearts. They sometimes don't even provide a foundation for it. What hangs, miracles hang on is the openness of the hearts of people that observe the miracle so that they see beyond the miracle to the giver of the great gift. They see Jesus for who He is. That's what Mark is trying to say to us. And so, in a sense, these Gentiles, these people that are living in Gadara, are no different to the Jews of Capernaum that Jesus had been preaching to up until this point. They, too, fail to see beyond the sign to who Jesus really is. And in contrast to that reaction, what does Mark do? He He shows the reaction of the freed man. Not only does he believe immediately but he also wants to follow Jesus. He also wants to become his disciple. He, he pleads. He says, Jesus, I want to travel with you. Please, I want to sit at your feet. And Jesus says to him, no, I want you to go and be a witness in the Decapolis. That's the ten towns of that whole area. That's so interesting to me. Why? Because the disciples haven't even yet been sent out. They haven't even yet been commissioned by Jesus to go and preach. And yet, he entrusts the message to this demonized man who's been set free. And he says, now, I want you to go back to your people, and I want to tell you to tell all of them what God has done for you. His disciples haven't even yet had that privilege been given to them. And so that, that is amazing. Those that were living with Jesus had not yet been trusted to preach the good news. And Jesus, in fact, had said to them, remember, ye of little faith, are you still scared by the storm? Do you not even see what I can do yet? And yet, this demonized man had already discovered what the disciples had yet to discover. They, he knew Jesus as his Savior, his Lord, and he knew what it meant to entrust his whole life to the, into the hands of Jesus. He knew what it was to be saved in a way that the disciples did not yet know what it meant to be saved. And so... There's also a deeper truth, and that's why I put the picture up about the ritual sacrifice. There's a deeper truth here as well that I think Mark is pointing us to. Remember, the Greeks were breeding these animals also for ritual sacrifice, and Jesus is showing us in this little picture that freedom from sin and the demonic does not come from ritual sacrifice. It comes through the power of the name of Jesus That's what it comes through. Do you remember, my friends, do you remember a man called Moses in the Old Testament? And what did he do? He took on all the gods of Egypt, and he showed there's one that is more powerful than all the pagan gods of Egypt. And he did all those amazing demonstrations of the power of God to show the people that there is one who has all power. What is Jesus doing? He's doing exactly the same thing. To all the Greek people, the, 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 the um, Gentiles in that region, that believed there was power in the god Zeus, or Mars. Do you know um, that the, 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 the Greeks believed that the deepest part of the sea, the abyss, we know that from Revelation nine eleven, 11, uh, was where the demons le- lived. The deepest part of the sea, the abyss, is where demonic powers lived. And so... Jesus is demonstrating to these Gentile Greeks not only that his power is superior to their God's power, but he's also sending the demons back to where they belong, to the depths of the sea. And the pigs run down the hill to the depths of the sea where they drown themselves. Do you get it? Jesus is saying, I have power over all these things, and I will send these demons back. Jesus goes down to Tyre and Sidon, and he comes back to the Decapolis, where he gathers 4,000 people and feeds them. Where did the 4,000 people come from? I like to think that the demonized man actually did what Jesus told him to do. And he went to all his friends and his family and everyone he could find in those towns and he said, let me tell you about this man Jesus and what he's done for me. So when Jesus comes back, He does some more miracles in the Decapolis, and he gathers 4,000 people, and he feeds them. The demonized man who was set free did what Jesus asked him to do. He went and told everyone about the great thing that Jesus had done for him. And so I've got three little points here to encourage you this morning, because this little story is an amazing encouragement and warning to all of us as it was to the disciples. It's such a great encouragement because it shows us that Jesus is both Lord and God and can conquer and command authority even over a legion of demons. And he could command authority over, the nature, over nature and still the storm. But it's also a warning because the warning is this. We are all have a choice, just as those people did, to welcome the presence of Jesus into our lives even if it means that we lose some things. They had a choice. Either they welcome Jesus into their lives or they lose some things. So there's an abundant blessing that Jesus brings to them. The man they see that's been demonized, he's there clothed in his right man, mind, but they prefer the pigs and they, pr- and they ask Jesus to leave. And tragically, that's, they get what they ask for. Jesus leaves. And the point is that their routine of their life had been disturbed and unsettled and they wanted the source of their disturbance to be removed. Jesus didn't want Jesus to disturb them too much. They liked things like they were. So here are three things for you to think about. When Jesus comes, it's instinctive for people to say, don't disturb my comfort. Don't disturb my comfort." That's the cry of the world that we live, isn't it? Jesus, great teacher is a great person, great moral person, but don't, I don't want him to disturb my life. I, mean, I like the way things are. Don't let Jesus come and disturb my life. On the whole, people like to be left alone, don't they? And so if someone was to come to you, and if I was to come to you and say, "I can give you a world that will be better for the mass of people in general, but it means for a time that your comfort must be disturbed a little bit. Um, and you will have to do with a little less yourself so that other people can have more, I guarantee you most of us would say, I'd much rather just have things the way they are. Thank you very much. And to stir the pot a little bit, you can see this played out in, our, in, our, in the world right now, the, the thing about climate change. You know, On one hand, you have people saying, overwhelming evidence of climate change. On the other hand, you have people saying, it's all tosh. Don't worry about it. Just leave it the way things are. Just leave it the way. It's all going to be fine. We have these things played out in our culture right before our eyes. And so Jesus does come, and when he comes, he disturbs us. And he disturbs us in the way that things have always been. And we have to choose to either welcome him or to push him And so, I put it to you that it is human not to want our comfort disturbed, but it is divine to allow our comfort to be disturbed so that other people have more. Other people are blessed. Other people have the presence of Jesus. Secondly, it's instinctive for us to say, don't disturb my possessions, just like they did with their pigs. <laughs> this is my source of income. Just leave it. It's really the, it's another aspect of the same thing that I've just said already. The, uh, the older that we get, the harder we find to, this uh, thing to do, isn't it? To be willing to give up what we possess. I've always found it fascinating that little children, have you noticed little kids, when they're really small, they're happy to share. Have you noticed that? They'll, they'll share their toys. We found it was instinctive for our boys when they were very small to share their toys, and then... Suddenly there were certain toys that they didn't want to share. Isn't that true? So it depends what the toy is. But generally, little ones are very happy to share. And as we get older and older, we find it a harder and harder thing to do, to share what we have with other people. And here, the Gadarenes were really upset that they had lost their pigs, which were their income. And we too can be really upset if Jesus calls to sacrifice something that we hold dear ourselves And yet we can't yet see the greater glory of what he wants to do. So we find it hard to sacrifice this thing, but there's a greater glory that he's going to bring. It's a greater thing he's doing if we would only have eyes to see what he wants to do. And so it's a true test of our faith if we are willing to become poorer for the sake of what we say we believe, that our personal wealth and comfort might be lessened for the sake of others and for a far greater good. Yeah. Over Christmas time, there were five families in this church that gave seven and a half thousand US dollars for three Cambodian families that none of us have even met. And I'm sure that their Christmas was a little bit different from what it could have been. Perhaps they made some sacrifices along the way of how they were going to celebrate or what they were going to do, but three Cambodian families. <laughs> extended families, now have homes because someone here in this church was saying, said I can do with a little bit less over Christmas and I'll do a little bit less so that someone else can have something more. You see what I'm saying? That's how it works. That's how the kingdom works. And so I'm just saying in all of these things, let's be open to the presence of Jesus and whatever he's calling us to do, let's respond and say yep. God, if it's for the greater good of other people, I'm happy to get on board. And I'm happy to do do with a little bit less so that you can do more for them. Amen. Not a big amen there. (laughs) And then thirdly, um, it's instinctive for us to say, don't disturb my religious beliefs, isn't it? People think this, or they often often don't say it out loud, but... um, often think this, don't let too many unpleasant things come in the way of our comfortable organization of church community. In other words, speak about the poor, but not too much. It's okay to mention suffering, but not too much. It's okay to have the Holy Spirit, but but not too much of the Holy Spirit. We don't want any of that weird stuff, you know. We don't want any weird manifestations in our meetings. Now, let's just rather focus on the pleasant parts of Christianity. Let's enjoy worship and prayer and fellowship and give us an entertaining message, preacher. Entertain us for 40 minutes or half an hour, but don't challenge us too much because then it gets uncomfortable. So please don't challenge us too much. Entertain us. And the world is full of entertainment, full of churches that are entertaining people. And I'm not sure to beat up on any other church. All I'm saying is that it's much more comfortable sometimes to preach about the details of neat theological beliefs and doctrines than it is to preach about the great, vast human need and the abuses that we find all over the world. And so it's fascinating to me that what got Jesus into trouble It wasn't what he said so much about God, although he did claim to be God. It was more about what he said about people and the human need that disturbed the religious orthodoxy of his day. Why did he get on the back of the scribes and the Pharisees? Because they focused on all the little details of religion and they forgot about the people. Jesus said, you're putting stuff on their backs. You're making it hard for them to find the kingdom of God. That's what he objected to. He wanted people to know his Father. And so... It's instinctive for us also to sometimes react like that. We can sometimes give in to the thought of thinking, if it's been good enough up until this point, it's good enough for me. In other words, it's always been done this way. Just, let's, just leave it like that and not do anything new. And sometimes we don't want to know anything new or be challenged into what is new because we have to go through the mental sweat of rethinking things and coming to different conclusions, and we don't like that. So it's instinctive for us to say, don't disturb my religion the way I've always done it. Just let's keep it the way it is. And so my challenge and my encouragement this morning as we've tried tried to look at this story is that all of us, we have to decide what we're going to do to this person, with this person called Jesus who often disturbs us and gets in the way of our comfort and says, I want you to look at that in a fresh way how are we going to respond to this Lord, this God of all creation, the one who has the power over the storm, the power over every evil demonic force, and the one who sometimes disturbs us and says, I've got something else that I want you to see. It's amazing in this story. He does this with someone that people least expected. I guarantee even though they saw the man, they didn't really recognize the man. They didn't see the potential of the man. And yet Jesus brings absolute liberty and freedom into this life where there's only been darkness, only been oppression, and only been death. And so, I want to encourage you this morning to welcome the presence of Jesus into your life, in every area of your life. Don't be the Gadarenes, and out of fear, like the Gadarenes, out of fear to say, no, I don't want you there. Go away. You can come to this, into this part, but not into that part. Go away. I don't want your presence there. Let's be rather like the freed man who absolutely knelt at the the feet of Jesus. And after he'd received grace for his own life, he responded to what Jesus said. And he went out and he told every single person of the great thing that Jesus had done for him. I've already hinted that when we come back to Mark later in chapter 7 and chapter 8, we're going to see 4,000 people that Jesus could draw to himself, and I believe because one man was obedient, and he went out and told everyone that he could about the great thing that Jesus had done for him. There are many of us here this morning. Imagine what we could do telling everyone of the great thing that Jesus has done for us, and how much more freedom and liberty can he bring to other people. That's why they came to see Jesus, one person responded to what he said. Let us be the same and let us be those that tell everyone what Jesus has done for us. Amen.